Good afternoon, everyone. We are here with uh, Aaron Lund, uh, a fellow at the Century Foundation and a, uh, a very well-respected journalist uh, working on Syria, someone whose work has been followed by uh, uh, Syria experts, journalists, and uh, laypersons alike. And uh, we are very happy and uh, lucky to have him with us today. Hi, Aaron. Hi, thank you. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Good, good. Uh, I, uh, again, I'm very happy to have you join uh, Status Alwada for your first interview, perhaps one yeah. of uh, several to come. And so. uh, we would like to uh, uh, talk with you a bit about Syria casually, uh, specifically mm -hmm. about the post-December situation after the uh, takeover by the regime of the entirety of the city of Aleppo and the uh, uh, aftermath in terms of the developments within uh, the rebel groups, uh, movements, and what is it exactly that uh, you have, uh, for instance, uh, observed as a trend or a pattern, and, and uh, if you can end with where, where you think we are now. Right. Okay, big question. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think... Uh, the, what happened with 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 Assad and the government recapturing eastern Aleppo was, I mean, it's become symbolic or emblematic of of of, of sort of not the government winning, not the opposition losing, but a, a tipping point in the war, I think. Uh, and really, the the seeds of that uh, were, I mean, it, it, it was already happening, but but eastern Aleppo finally falling to the government was kind of the the point where everyone. And by everyone, I mean in this, you know, the the the, the international community, the, the Western states, the United States, and the others, they sort of recognized it openly, and they said that you know this is not the the rebels are not they're not winning, and and that sort of everyone has been sort of reformulating their approach to the war since then, I think. Um, and I mean, I mean, the trends were, were clear already. I think that the the rebels. I mean, they were under siege in Aleppo since spring 2016, and they tried to break out. And at one point, they they sort of broke out, but then uh, they were pushed back in again. And I think the the real tipping point here was much earlier. It was probably, you know, if I have to find a single moment, it was the Russian intervention, Russian Iranian escalation in September 2015. That was when things really changed. I think. Um, and since then, I think we've seen the uh, the Syrian opposition. Uh, it's been co-opted. What, what remained of the the insurgency has been co-opted by by outside players in one way or another. And in the south, of course, Jordan and the government, the the governments working through Jordan, um, have sort of they've accepted to de-escalate in the south and refocus their attention on the Islamic State and, and uh, other jihadi groups in that area at the expense of the war against Assad. And in the north, you've seen more or less the same thing with Turkey when they pushed into into the area northeast of Aleppo with Al-Bab and, and, and Jarabalus in these places in August 2016. And basically Turkey reconciling with Russia in, in in the summer of 2016, as a consequence of you know uh, sanctions and and just Turkey realizing that the war wasn't going their way and 
and the PKK through various front organizations was rising in, in, in Syria. I think that, I mean, we're now seeing Turkey focusing much more narrowly on Turkish interests at the expense of the war against Assad as well. They're still his enemy. They still want him gone, but they're not really pushing for that in the same way as before. Uh, they're pushing to to secure their own border against uh, and then to weaken the, the Kurdish groups. And then the, what, what really remains of the insurgency, the, the independent insurgency that's still sort of primarily focused on toppling Assad. Uh, on the one hand, you have some pockets of territory like the eastern Huta, uh, east of Damascus, and you have a uh, few towns north of Homs, Rastan, Talvisa, these places, and a few other enclaves inside inside uh, regime territory. Uh, but then really it's it's the northwest uh, Idlib, basically, and, and some, you know, uh, adjacent areas in uh, like western Aleppo countryside and, and, and north Hama is a little uh, speck of territory in, in northeast Latakia as well. So and that part of the insurgency, which still has backing from abroad, from from Turkey and Qatar and, and the even the US in some ways, um, that could, I mean, that still threatens Assad in, or, or the Syrian government in many ways, but it's also, I think, it's gone too far down the Islamist route, you know. The uh, former, you know, the, the group now called Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, uh, formerly Fatah sham and before that, the Nusra Front, which was Al-Qaeda's wing in Syria, they really are the, the the most powerful faction in that area of Syria right now. And the, the second most powerful faction, which is the only group that could really balance them in some way with, with a proper amount of international support and so on, that's Ahrar al-Sham, which is, which is also a pretty strict fundamentalist uh, group striving for theocracy and, and, and rejecting democracy in, in, in the sense, uh, you know, uh, understood by 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 the United States and others, so they don't want that group to win either. It's, 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 it's you know, maybe Turkey and Qatar and other governments and, of course, private funders abroad in the Gulf and so on could, could still support that insurgency uh, just to spite Assad and spite Iran and spite Russia and, 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 and prevent that area from falling, in Turkey's case, because they don't want the refugees and so on. But the idea that anyone uh, would seriously back that slice of the insurgency as a contender for power in Syria, I think that's that, that's not happening. Uh, Idlib will, is, is more likely to turn into sort of a, you know, as, as, as some people of the opposition decision side say, you know, the, the Kandahar of Syria, it's, it's, it's turning into an area that will be at some point regarded the way people in the West now look at Raqqa. You know, this is sort of the jihadi badlands. We're not backing anyone that we just want to get rid of this territory and that's a tragedy of course for the civilians in that area but but the political effect is that the, the opposition doesn't really have any there's no area where the syrian opposition really has a, 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 a can use as a staging ground to to go for either a military victory or even a political solution that, that would that would sort of incorporate them in power in some way so I think the, in, in some sense, the Syrian opposition, however we define that, they've already lost the war and they can redefine the war as just fighting to stay in the game. And, and you know, sure, you can do that, but it's not it's not the same thing as they were fighting for in 2012, 2013, 2014 and so on. 
So that's my take. Do you think uh, we are witnessing, as some have said, the end of the military option, not as in the end of uh, the use of uh, force to uh, fight the regime and its allies, but sort of the end of a military option uh, as far as uh, nearly all the opposition uh, factions are concerned, whether they are civilian or uh, military uh, is it is it uh, uh, that we are getting to that juncture or that we have gotten to it uh, at least in part or or is in in your view based on your um, uh, work and observations and research is it something that is going to be a matter of regrouping and then everyone is going to jump on the bandwagon again in light of course of the of the various fissures and and uh, uh, infighting that we have uh, been witnessing. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, one should ne you know, never say never, you know, uh, this war has, you know, continued to surprise me. And I think everyone, like every year, there's this big upset, whether it's the Russian intervention or the rise of the Islamic State or something like that. Um, so something could still happen to really change the game again. And I think there are some rebel groups that are still fighting with, with that as their, you know, last remaining sort of hope uh, that Assad will just suddenly fall down dead one day or something like this. Um, but I think if, if, if that hasn't happened and it continues on the current trajectory, then what remains for the opposition groups or for the, for the armed opposition is uh, some of the rebels are talking about, you know, going underground and conducting an insurgency and it's not, territorially focused and trying to hold territory, but you would instead go, you know, uh, work with car bombs and assassinations and ambushes and, and just organizing clandestinely. And that could, you know, absolutely, that will be a part of Syria's reality for, for many, 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 many years, I think. Um, but an insurgency like that in this situation will be a jihadi insurgency. You know, like we saw in Iraq, uh, the only group that sort of came out of that phase alive was the Islamic State at that point. And in Syria, it will be the Islamic State or it will be Tahrir al-Sham al-Qaeda, whatever you want to call them. Um, so, I mean, I don't see a future for for any sort of internationally backed, respectable, so to speak, opposition under those circumstances. And that doesn't mean the fighting is over. It, it just means that the sort of the... I think that most of the governments involved in the Syrian war will no longer back a, a military um, strategy for regime change, uh, as they have so far. And and what that means, I think, is that people will, you know, it will mean that the fighting is over. It will mean that 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 they start focusing on their own interests and securing them in, in different ways. And that's what we're seeing with Turkey. It's what we're seeing with with uh, with Jordan. And I think we're also seeing with, with the United States, you know, the United States ramped up its counterterrorism uh, operations, uh, drone strikes, missile strikes and so on in in northwestern Syria, Idlib, a lot since autumn. And that coincides, I think, with, you know, the, the you know, some people say it's because the United States decided that, oh, these jihadi groups are a bigger threat than we thought. I think maybe the real reason is that they decided that you know, the, this insurgency isn't going anywhere. There's no reason for us to hold back anymore. 
So it's a more of a nationally focused, interest focused strategy and where the Syrian opposition ends up in that. I don't know. Um, the, the, the problem, I mean, in, in, in a, in a normal civil war with quotation marks, uh, maybe you could have rebel groups transitioning to, to a political role and to, taking part in, in, in a political process. But the problem here is you don't have a political process. And the Assad government isn't offering anything. I mean, they have their reconciliations on a local level and so on, what they call reconciliations. And they have uh, various formal and informal mechanisms whereby you can be co-opted back into the system. But but it's really nothing that, that I mean, there's no real power sharing going on. There's no open debate. There's no, there's nothing to, to, to there's no other side of the, conflict to jump over to there's no one you know and that's a problem i think and that's a function of how the regime works in many ways that it's so closed and narrow-minded and just incapable of change even in ways that would benefit it i think thank you um can we uh can you tell us a a couple of things uh actually i'd like to follow up with um, the idea of whether this last juncture, which you know is about four months away from us right now, except that mm-hmm. it, it it just feels that things froze uh, at some level. Did this juncture uh, after Aleppo did does it represent a a break between uh, the rebel factions, uh, or at least most of them, and the uh, the uh, what is called the civilian opposition? And I'm not talking about the opposition. Inside Syria, basically a mm. large number of people and groups who are uh, not necessarily formally represented, but the opposition uh, that is mostly uh, uh, outside Syria or connected to uh, various uh, patron countries, whether it's mm. Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the United States or, or otherwise. Like the National Coalition. So. That, yes, like the National Coalition yeah. and, and others, who, uh, but mainly that – if. Did this juncture represent a some sort of a, a break? And and if you have any uh, insights on on how this is viewed uh, by internal groups that uh, might have actually put their uh, hope in uh, in uh, the rebel factions, even if they did not support them ideologically, uh, right. and because that's always a messy thing. People always claim to to be able to speak for. Um, uh, sometimes all Syrians, sometimes most Syrians, and we are all somewhat uh, guilty of this. But yeah. but but there, there's there is something to be said about the kind of support that people have in Syria for different sides. That is not a wholehearted support or a uh, uh, an absolute support, uh, whereby you know the regime is uh, you know hor- hor- horrifically problematic. But people living under it feel, or certain groups and and communities feel, at least more protected than uh, if they had been living under other, uh, you know, uh, groups or factions. And sure. then on the other side, people, you know, end up supporting Harar Sham, uh, thinking or hoping there might be some sort of victory down the line, yeah. uh, but not really supporting everything that Harar Sham. Uh, stands for, let alone Jabhat al-Nusra or Jabhat Fatah al-Sham. So, um, you know, notwithstanding these kinds of uh, uh, gray area uh, positions, uh, it, has there been a, 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 a rupture in the civilian military, um, or, you know, connection 
uh, if it ever, had ever been uh, solid? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I, um, well, I think I mean the the as you say, people support the different sides for many many reasons, uh, and that goes for both the government side and the the opposition side, and of course also the YPG and Islamic State and all all, all of the sides. Um, but I think the I mean, the relevance of the national coalition and the higher negotiating committee and, and these exile bodies uh, was not primarily because they had popular support. You know, to an extent, they did have popular support, as do all parties of the world. But but um, I, I mean, their real relevance was that foreign governments that were involved in the war and backed certain rebel factions told these rebel factions that you have to be represented abroad by these, by the national coalition and by these groups. And they would put them in Geneva and to negotiate. And then they would sort of use these groups as they're negotiating. You know, we want these Syrians to be in the, the, uh, uh, the unity government or the transitional body, whatever they envisioned. We don't want Ahrar Sham to, to sort of take over. And the problem, I think, is, I mean, even if the national coalition members and leaders and other exile opposition groups or even groups inside Syria and some of the armed rebel factions connected to them, uh, those many of those using the, the Free Syrian Army flag or symbols, um, even if they persist uh, with the same you know, they they still support the same values. They still support the same um, solutions, and and, and they, they stick to their rhetoric and so on. I mean, they don't have a chance of getting anywhere with that without the foreign support, because they were very very dependent on 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 that support uh, from the United States, France, Great Britain, and uh, also Turkey. Qatar and Saudi Arabia, although those countries also supported other groups, more Islamist groups. So, I mean, if if, if they're no, no longer considered useful to these governments, and I don't think they are anymore, they will eventually be be cast aside or, or just left left to 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 you know fade away. Um. So I, I, I'm not sure there was there's been a rupture. It's just. A, that these groups, if they don't have a role to serve, then no one will support them in the end. Um, and and I think the, uh, the 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 tipping point, which I would argue happened earlier, was was sort of um, symbolized by the fall of Eastern Aleppo to the government. I think that tipping point has sort of made it clear to to all involved that there won't be, you know. Uh, Assad will not be defeated militarily, and there will also not be a situation where you pressure him so hard that he sort of agrees to to a political solution that will involve these groups. From this point on, some other it won't be a transition in Syria, and without a transition, these groups have no you know raison d'être. There, there, there's no point of having them anymore, and that that, that that's in some way disconnected from from how much popular support they have or, you know, how well or not well they've been able to convince rebel groups to support them. Um, I think, I think it's more a function of that actually, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, 
Thank you. Uh, I uh, Before we move on to something a bit more, uh, uh, I guess, analytical, uh, I'd like to ask you if uh, you can share with us uh, just briefly, uh, if we go quickly through the uh, different actors supporting the regime uh, and uh, or the opposition, uh, whether it's the uh, Arab Gulf states, Turkey, the United States, Iran, uh, Hezbollah, uh, Russia, China, Mm-hmm. And others, if you can just uh, you know give us from where you stand, um, especially that in, you're in Europe, so you're you're in a good place in, uh, <laughs> geographically uh, right. to, to be able to see those uh, kinds of dimensions. If you can tell us, uh, you know, wh- where, how do you think? Uh, although you've touched on that a bit, how do you think uh, things have changed uh, today? We're talking uh, uh, on May first. Uh, several months after after December, and maybe we are putting uh, a bit too much emphasis on December and and Aleppo, but it's really uh, it's simply a, a landmark rather than yeah, yeah, yeah. anything else. Yeah. Well, I think I mean it's, all of this has been happening for many years. You know, um, I think for example, the United States, the position of of the Obama administration evolved a lot between like 2012 and and and. Uh, 2000, even 2013, 2014. I mean, they, there was, I mean, the, the, uh, the United States went into the conflict thinking that Assad would fall on his own somehow, or maybe they could nudge him a little bit and he would fall and then something would happen and then they would transition would magically take place. And then gradually realized that this was not happening and, and, and Obama didn't want to get too involved, but he also wanted to sort of shape the opposition in ways that, would, you know, uh, so the, the United States position has, it, it, it's shifted a lot over, over time, I think. And, but you've also seen that the, the position of U.S. allies shifting um, uh, with, with uh, Turkey being the most the clearest example, I think, when they really did. Uh, changed their policy in 2016, and that that I think was one of the big tipping points of the war. Um, but um, I mean, also like the, the the Saudi government, for example, they're still you know they still hate Bashar al-Assad and they want him gone, but but they they're also busy doing stuff in Yemen. They're busy doing other things. Um, so it's 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 a I think generally, as I said before, I think that the opposition side especially has moved more and more toward sort of looking out for their own interests in Syria after realizing that they wouldn't achieve what they set out to do. And that can take different forms and so on. And, 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 and they're not willing to talk about it publicly because there's no point in handing Assad and Putin and Khamenei a free concession by saying that, you know, Assad can stay the Trump administration did this to to some extent. Now they said basically that, you know, we still think Assad should go, but we're not going to spend a lot of time trying to achieve that anymore. We have other priorities now. So um, on the, on the, on the government side, the pro-government side, I think, um, you know, what do I know? But, <laughs> but, but it seems to me that interests there and, and, and policies there have been pretty consistent all along. Uh, the Iranian government really wants the Assad, the you know the the regime, the regime, the, the Assad family and so on, to stay because it's a, it's a huge part of their their uh, regional security infrastructure. Um, 
because of Hezbollah and Lebanon and so on. Um, and the Russian government, you know, it's been a it's been interesting to watch how Western governments have always sort of uh, the U.S. In, in, in particular, I think, has tried to sort of they 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 really wanted Russia to work for a transition in Syria, and they really wanted Russia to do this and that and get Assad out, and maybe they can push him out or convince him or launch a coup from the inside or something or something. But the Russians have, you know. They've formally they've said they're committed to, you know, they don't want regime change. They want an orderly solution and so on. But in practice, they've they've been working to save the regime, like the Iranians, because they are also locked into this. You know, the the, the Russians they're not magicians. They're a, they 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 can tip the war in Assad's advantage, and they have. But I don't think the Russian government can, you know, go into the sort of the internal functioning of the Syrian government and, and get, you know, sort of surgically remove Assad and his family and his cronies from power without destroying it and without provoking Iran. And they need Iran and they need Assad to 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 win the war. And that's their that's their goal. So they're trying to win the war. And that means supporting Assad, um, whatever they say publicly. And so far, They've been doing pretty well at that. I mean, they are they are winning the war insofar as the war can be won, and I think it's more a it's a you know how their strategy will evolve. I think depends largely on how well the regime sticks together and functions, and how much territory it can take with support from them. Um, I mean, they don't necessarily have an interest in recapturing every centimeter of Syria. Um, Putin has shown very clearly, I think, that he's comfortable with having these frozen conflicts and sort of half, uh, half finished wars, in, whether it's in Georgia or you know, even you know many many places around Russia's own borders. And I'm sure he's he's fine with having that in Syria as well. Assad might like to have support until he retakes every grain of of Syrian territory, but that's. Not necessarily where Putin is going, I think, but but we're not even close to that point yet. You know, they they still have to uh, shore up Assad. You know, get rid of the the last rebel areas around Damascus and Homs, and and, and deal with the Idlib region in some way, and sort of push the foreign backers of the opposition even harder until they back off even more from the war, um, and then they can you know maybe Russia can start to sort of re calibrate its priorities in Syria. But but so far they're with they're with Assad and they're they're sticking with him until they've they've uh, they've crossed that threshold, I think. This is my, you know, it's no I'm not privy to <laughs> to 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 the internal deliberations in the Kremlin or in, in, in Washington DC. So but this is my reading of the situation. Thank you. Um well, let's. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's true. It's very difficult to to uh, figure uh, this out, especially that uh, it looks like things might change uh, more than, for instance, they have in the past 
six years ending with uh, December or almost six years, things might actually take a different turn, especially mm. with what the United States is doing. But, yeah. uh, you know, apart from trying to, to guess the future, um, I'd like to go back to the past uh, a little bit and ask you um, uh, questions that uh, students of Syria would like to hear your uh, take on. Uh, how do I know this? Uh, uh, I think you know. I think it's uh, it's something that we can reflect on right now, and and, and people might be um, you know a, a bit more uh, quote unquote free uh, mm. to think about this. Even even though the the killing has not stopped, and the fighting has not stopped, and the crisis has not stopped, and the refugees have not stopped, uh, mm. you know, for some reason the media gives the impression that things are are have stopped in Syria or have actually slowed down significantly as if only yeah. the big news uh, is worth, uh, you know, uh, relaying. So the yeah. question, the question is, uh, uh, I've, I've been following you over the years, uh, as you wrote about uh, various rebel groups and how uh, they come together or break apart, form coalitions and then disintegrate or, um, mm. you know, uh, kind of disband, and my question to you is, um, you know, wh what do you think uh, explains this kind of coming together and breaking uh, apart of, of these uh, formations uh, over the years? Are, are there some particular factors that, that you've noticed over time that sort of explain uh, these, uh, these patterns? Or, or is it mostly a function of what happens on the battlefield uh, in terms of, you know, the, the fortunes of of some of these groups and in, in, in being able to push ahead or otherwise. And then, of course, some say it's it's about economics and funding as much mm. as it is about, you know, messaging and, and ideology. Um, mm. So is, is, is there a way, like looking back, that, that we could begin at least to look at the factors that uh, explain uh, the, some of these patterns? Well, yeah, I, I, that's a really interesting question, actually, and, I, and one I've thought a lot about um, without necessarily reaching all the answers. But I, yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the Syrian war has shown, um, I mean, I think you can draw some important lessons about uh, factionalized insurgencies or, or multi-sided wars and, and factionalized wars in, in general from, from Syria, because it's been such an extreme example of that. And I mean, if you look at which groups have been successful in Syria, because in the, at the high point of the war, according to the Defense Intelligence Agency, actually, they said in 2013 that there was, I think the number was 1,200 to 1,500 armed factions in Syria. I think that referred to the opposition side only. And of course, many of these groups were small and just very localized, with, you know, someone and his cousins in a village. And many of them cooperated under some bigger umbrella and so on, but they were sort of distinct entities anyway. And that's a huge number of groups, of course. And in a in an environment of that kind, um, most of those groups obviously did not succeed. They were either destroyed or they sort of folded and, and went away. Or more commonly, I think they were absorbed into a bigger group. And, and then you have to look at which, which were the, the bigger groups that were successful. And I think... I mean, you can just look at Syria's, what Syria looks like right now. Apart from the government areas, you have uh, the Islamic State and you have the, uh, the Kurdish areas, which are run by, you know, they call themselves many different things, YPG and Tebdem and P3 
PYD and so on and so on. But it's really the PKK. Um, and then you have in the opposition areas uh, of, you know, a mixture of different groups, really, but a few of them bigger than the others. And the most successful ones, I would say, uh, have been the Harir Sham, the former Nusra Front, basically Al-Qaeda, or, you know, now they say they're not connected to Al-Qaeda anymore, but, you know, they were formed out of Al-Qaeda. And then Ahrar al-Sham, which is sort of a national uh, group, still roots in Salafi jihadism, but but different in, in various ways. Uh, more pragmatic, I would say. And then you have uh, a group that I've looked a lot at, actually in the eastern Ghouta region, which is sort of a contained battle space because it's under siege, so that you have this microcosm of groups there. Very interesting to see how they sort of related to each other uh, when they were cut off from the larger uh, insurgency. And the biggest group there was the, the Islam army, Jesh al-Islam, with Zahran al-Ush, which is also a Salafi group. And I think what these groups have in common, uh, all of them, a few different things. Uh, they have ideology in common, not the same ideology, but a very, you know, a, a, a driving, motivating ideology. Definitely, you had most of them some sort of Salafi or Salafi jihadi approach. But in the case of the, the Kurdish groups, it was more, you know, the, the Afwist ideology, which is a leftist sort of Ojalan's uh, ideology, roots in Marxism, but, but considerably changed now. But still, an ideology that's really alive among the supporters. They they believe in this. They're they're taught the doctrine and they believe in the doctrine and, and they are even willing to die for it. You know, they have suicide bombers and they're a secular group. That's pretty unusual. So that was important, I think. And then the other thing uh, would be that they were they've all been all of these groups have been very very goal oriented and very very ruthless in 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 certain ways. Um, and I mean against internal rivals, um, especially, of course, the Islamic State, which, you know, kills anyone that tries to oppose it. And when they had a small tribal uprising in eastern Syria, soon after they took that area in 2014, they basically wiped out a whole clans that had been linked to those who rose up against them just to sort of make their point. But also the Islam army in the Ghouta region, uh, very harsh tactics against uh, dissidents in that area and other rebel factions. Um, and Tahrir al-Sham, we're seeing this now. Uh, Northwestern Syria has been a little bit different in the other areas, but Tahrir al-Sham are, you know, reused very, very, they've, they've broken up several smaller uh, smaller factions. And Ahrar al-Sham has been, Ahrar al-Sham has probably been the most diplomatic of these and more often took over groups by persuasion and offering money and support and so on and protection. Um, not so much coercion, although that has happened as well, of course. Um, so, so they have that in common. And then I would say that for most of them, uh, it's actually the case that they came in with a ready-made hierarchy. They're very, uh, in the case of, the Nusra Front, Tahrir al-Sham today, and the Islamic State, they came in through Iraq and they had, you know, the, 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 the structure of the group was already finished. You know, they, they, they came in with a leader, they had a hierarchy, they had money, they had activists, and everyone knew who's, you know, what the chain of command was. 
and then they split. And, but still, you know, they had the, the, the Salafi jihadi structure was there. And in the case of the, 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 the Kurdish groups, the same thing, you know, the PKK already existed as a functioning insurgent organization uh, in Iraq. They just rolled in across the border and, and applied that template to Syria. So, I mean, the Islam army, Harsham, a little bit different, but still they drew a lot of their inspiration from the Salafi jihadi groups that had fought in Iraq. And they took sort of the, the, the organizational model from there. And they had uh, both of them, especially I would say the Islam army had um, a core network to rely on from the start. And the Islam army in that case, it was the, uh, the Salafi movement in Duma, which is uh, a city inside the Eastern Ghouta, which has a strong, you know, it had... Uh, a, a very lively Salafi movement before the war. So there was already you know, a network of mosques and students and, and, and clerics in that area that they could rely on when, they, when the war began. So in contrast to all the other groups, which, which, which basically rose from the bottom up, these groups came in with something they could apply top down. And they did so quite ruthlessly. And I think that that's, that's really a part of the explanation. And then, of course, you have the factors you mentioned, which is, you know, uh, sh sheer luck in many cases, but also foreign funding, for example. They all had funding sources uh, from abroad uh, that, that have been very important to them. And that's that's obvious. But they also it's also the case that they got the funding because they were already functioning organizations and had these networks abroad already. And they had already sort of and they proved that they could do something with the money and they could recruit and they could send people to the Gulf and so on. So, uh, so that I mean, it's those, those things uh, work together, I think. Um, but I mean, the my understanding of this is, the, I mean, the Syrian war to me seems to demonstrate that that an insurgency that is so factionalized and so divided, it won't just unify from the bottom up. Yeah, it 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 it, it there will be coercion involved. You have to have a group that goes in and really forces people to fall in line or they won't. They will split and they will, you know, that's what happened to nearly all of the coalitions. The rebels have formed, I don't know how many different coalitions and Islamic councils and this and that, and they all fall apart because at some point someone gets, you know, uh, a judge rules against them and they just walk away and form a new council or split and say that, you know, we expel the others. But the groups that didn't tolerate that, those were the groups that, that, that survived. The Islamic State didn't tolerate that. They just killed anyone who disagreed. And that works, you know. <laughs> I would love to say that that doesn't work. That's not the way you, you run an insurgency, but I think it is. And, and Syria has demonstrated that quite clearly, I think. Thanks, uh, Aaron. Um, Okay, well, you know, we we're we're reaching uh, sort of the end, and before uh, before we uh, let you go, uh, I have a, just a couple of things I would like to mm -hmm. check uh, with you uh, about. First, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what has been? Uh, this is going to sound like a like a silly NPR question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't believe I'm asking it, but. Uh, uh, given your background and given how closely connected to the events, can you tell us what has been uh, sort of uh, uh, quite uh, uh, surprising or shocking 
based on your observation in the past six years in terms of the developments in Syria? I mean, there are things one expects to happen in similar conflicts and uh, insurrections, uprisings, revolutions, civil wars. However, you want to, uh, you know, characterize what is happening in Syria. I'm, I'm not fond of the term civil war myself mm-hmm. uh, uh, in this case. But what has been, what, what has actually um, perhaps caused you to, to, to uh, rethink some things or what has been uh, like, like literally shocking or, or surprising? Oh, okay. Well, I mean, many things, of course. I, I'm going to struggle to come up with one, I think. But, um, you know, one thing that I think I understood more clearly the longer this went on and the more I learned and the more people I spoke to and the more people who were willing to speak to me was just the how <laughs> how stupid politics can be. <laughs> because, I mean, it, it, in the sense that many, many people who make very important decisions in this war on all sides, they know very little uh, about their opponents, especially. You know, everyone is driven by prejudice and, and, and information just filters out through these networks of, you know, the sources you like and the sources you rely on. And the amount of, you know, rumor and conspiracy theory and so on and so on. Um, I just think the, and I mean, this applies to, to the Syrian actors, of course, and also to the international actors, even though, you know, you, you, I started out thinking that maybe, maybe inside, you know, the big governments, they, they, they must have the, you know, the best analytical apparatuses and and all the information and all the detail and so on. But in the, in the end, it comes down to, to people who have to make decisions and, and, and one person can only take in so much information and people who make decisions on these things, Syria, they, they're usually people who will also have to make decisions on everything from Ethiopia to Russia to North Korea. They don't know much about Syria. You know, they know what they're told and then they sort of have to to act on that information somehow and, and decisions just end up being made very arbitrarily. And on all sides, and that sort of collides into this, you know, all that imperfect, imperfect decision making just collides in this hellish war because many, many sides, I think, of the war have not chosen the, 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 the most rational way to approach the problem from there. You know, if you look back and you, you know, with perfect hindsight, then, then it's easy to see that many, you know, all involved could have done very different things and they would have benefited from that. And I'm not, you know, of course, you know, I'm in the same situation. I don't know, you know, uh, 1% of what I would like to know to, to understand this. I have to guess and then I make errors all the time. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't make any decisions. So that's good. But I think that's been been, been an eye opener for me, at least, that I, uh, I have a lot less confidence in the wisdom of, of big government at this point. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Aaron. That that actually uh, that actually is uh, very interesting, and I'm I'm hoping that we can um, 
not continue to be surprised, but <laughs> continue to talk. Um, okay, before leaving uh, or leaving you or releasing you, I, I wanted to see if uh, throughout the years, uh, since you, I'm assuming you, you were not able to, to do field work in Syria. Uh, many many would uh, would wonder uh, what did you rely on as sources and uh, and of course I mean you have uh, uh, you know probably sources that you cannot uh, reveal and so on and so forth mm. but in general how how were you able to keep up because if one uh, those of us who have uh, read your uh, articles and reports uh, you know saw a lot of rich material uh, how how were you able to uh, follow uh, these intricacies of of the uh, uh, rebels and rebel movements mm. and so on. Yeah, yeah, I, I that's true. I mean, I, I I did get to Syria now last year, finally in October, November, um, but that was the first time in in, uh, in six years. Uh, I couldn't. I mean, I didn't get a visa before, so um, and I didn't, you know, want to go in and get kidnapped with, on the other side, so. Um, but I, I mean, I, when this started in 2011, I had already, I wrote a book in Swedish about the Syrian opposition that came out in, I think, September, 2010. Uh, so I was already really sort of into the Syrian opposition. I'd been interviewing people for several years and gone around and, you know, in Syria and in all these exile groups in Europe. Um, so I had a network, I think already, and most of that network, of course, now has, you know, transformed into what is now the, the exile opposition. And many of them are not very relevant anymore because new groups rose to, to become important in Syria, the rebels. Um, but I, I, I started out there, I think. So I had a, an understanding of the situation from there and I used that as much as I could. But then, really, it's the case. I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, there's an enormous amount of information available if you just look for it. All of the rebel groups and all of the opposition factions and a lot of groups and people on the regime side as well and the Islamic State and the Kurds and so on, everyone, and the various governments, they're all just pushing out information daily. There's you can't even read a fraction of it. But if you're looking for information on on on, on something, a situation, a city, or a group, or a, an event, or whatever it is, then there there will be information out there. You can just call someone up, and you can, or you can just read all the statements, and you read them from you know the, the different sides and so on. And you always have to cross check information because everyone's lying to you. You just have to figure out who's lying about what. Uh, but they will, you know, generally they will be very helpful to point out. Who, the lies of the other side. So that's that's a good way of approaching it, I think. Um, so, th I mean, there's an enormous amount of information out there. It's just about taking your time to sit down and try to understand that and take that in and, and, and do what you can with it. And then just knowing your limits when you, when something is not knowable, then you should just try to stay away from saying anything on that topic, I think. Uh, or, and you know, not... not convince yourself that you know more than you do uh because a lot of these things will you know many things will remain ununderstood for <laughs> forever um so i you know uh, i think that's it you know just use this the wealth of information that's out there and talk to people uh you know uh, uh 
either you go to the if you can go to Syria, great, go to Syria. If you can go to the region around Syria, that's also great. Um, and then there's phone and there's Skype and there's email and there's all sorts of social media. And, and, and there's a lot of people who want to talk about, to you about these things and explain their point of view. So just use that. That's my, that's what I try to do. Thanks, Aaron. Is, is there anything uh, you'd like to say before, um, before we uh, let you go on with your life? <laughs> uh, uh, I should come up with something clever now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's going to be silly. Uh, Okay. You know, um, uh, no, I just, I just, uh, uh, no, thanks for having me and, and, and thanks for doing a great job with, with, uh, with Jedalia, which is a great site. Uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank thank you. you. And uh, actually we, uh, this was really, um, this is really comfortable and insightful and, uh, informative. And, uh, I hope that, uh, that we can do this more often. It does, it doesn't have to be like a, uh, uh an all around conversation about uh, all kinds of things maybe uh as developments take place we'll 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 give you a call and uh, and get your viewpoint okay thank you great okay Aaron thank you very much for giving us your time take care all right take care bye 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 bye